This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me just start uh, with prayer. Father, um, I know there is a lot here, but I know that your spirit is, is able to illumine our minds. I know that we often struggle to recognize what you're saying and doing, not just uh, in our lives, but in your word. And yet you are a powerful God. You are a God committed to your people and determined to um, pour out your spirit and produce fruit in and through us. And Lord, you are able to draw us into your presence, even in, in a text like this, so that we could understand and glorify and just bask in the goodness of who you are. Lord, you say that you, you keep us in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would enable us to have our minds stayed on you so that we would be a community of peace. In your name I pray, amen. So yeah, we're starting uh, back in Isaiah. Uh, and if that is, uh, you're like, oh no, back in Isaiah. A little bit, maybe a little bit of encouragement is uh, we're starting... Next week, we start in chapter 40. Basically, 40 through 66 is all the good news. <laughs> uh, so we're not going to go back to some, there's some... There's some rough parts of Isaiah to get through Isaiah. This is our fourth section in this whole series. So Isaiah 40 through 66 is a lot of the good news, a lot of what God is doing. He's stepping in and, and uh, bringing about the new creation and, and creating uh, fruit where there was only desert. And he's, he's sort of demonstrating his character and his goodness. And so that, that's kind of where we're going as we start Isaiah chapter 40 next week, and I just thought it would be good to sort of orient ourselves a little bit around just the idea of prophecy and sort of just the gist of what Isaiah is saying. So I'm, I'm not going to try to summarize all of the previous 39 chapters uh, this morning, but Isaiah chapter 1, most commentators see Isaiah chapter 1 as a unique kind of separate summary of the gist of what's going on in Isaiah. So if you have a grip on what's happening in Isaiah chapter 1, then you have a pretty good grip on what's happening through the other 65 chapters. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on Isaiah chapter 1. But I, before we summarize, before we talk about some of the things that are in Isaiah chapter 1, I kind of want to or I want to look at the New Testament, a couple passages in the New Testament, and we'll put them up on the screen. I want to look at a couple of passages in the New Testament that I think help us view the prophecy of Isaiah properly. Because it's easy, I think the temptation is, and I'll, maybe I'll speak for myself, maybe how I grew up was, or my temptation was that this, Isaiah is writing to a people, he's writing to Israel in a very specific historical context, which he is, <laughs> and he's communicating something that's relevant for them that then does give us little pictures of what Jesus would do in the future but the majority of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, was originally intended for a different audience so that they could turn and they could sort of wrestle with the situations that were going on at their particular moment in time. And so that's kind of, kind of what I, my, I grew up sort of understanding. And as, and as my grew up understanding more of the Old Testament, you know, we're called Emmaus Church because Jesus says in the road to Emmaus that like all of scripture speaks to who he is. And when we get into Advent, we get later, we're gonna see the servant songs later in the book of Isaiah are like very much explicitly talking about 
the glory and the beauty of the suffering servant. And it's something that most of us have some familiarity with. But when you read how the New Testament speaks of the prophetic books of the Bible, when you read about things that the New Testament says about this particular prophecy that you and I are going to be studying for the remainder of the year, it actually tells us that this prophecy is primarily for our time. The book of Isaiah is primarily for our time. Not we can benefit from it, which we can. Not that it's about Jesus, which it is. Not that it wasn't about things that are speaking to a particular historical context, because it does. But it's primarily for you and I today. And if you're thinking, what? <laughs> uh, good, then you're tracking with me. So let's turn to 1 Peter, and we'll read a couple of verses from 1 Peter and see what Peter has to say about prophecy. And then we'll, we'll look at some other examples too. So I want to try to make this point because I think it's really important as we study this. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 10 through 12 and just make a couple of comments. Um, if you ever need encouragement, read the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1. Like it's like all good things that God has done for you. Uh, all of the wonderful realities that come in the gospel. So you can just read like, if you ever just need some encouragement, jump into 1 Peter chapter 1 and just read like the first nine verses. Um, so he gives us all this wonderful encouragement, all this, these beautiful things about the glory and the majesty of God and what he's doing for his people. And then in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, like all the stuff I just talked about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, like all these wonderful good things that I just explained to you, they, these prophets, like Isaiah, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So kind of the point I made before is the Old Testament is actually talking about the, the suffering and the glory of Jesus. So Peter's telling us that the prophets, when they spoke these things, when they wrote down these prophecies, they were wondering like, hey, what is this all about? Like, what is this suffering servant? What is this, the, the suffering of God's people and the glorification? What, like, what's happening here as we think about the Messiah? And then verse 12, it says, it was revealed to the prophets, to them, that they were serving not themselves, but you. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter is saying that these prophets served not themselves, not their particular time frame, but you. Let's look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 11. Paul basically says the same thing, almost more directly. <laughs> he just spent some time recapping some stories from the Old Testament. And this is what Paul says in verse 11. Now these things happened, these Old Testament things happened, to them, the people of God, as an example, but why were they written down? They were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. 
These things in the Old Testament were written down for your instruction. Amen. On whom the end of the age has come. Uh, shorthand for, we have the Messiah. <laughs> like all the things that were being talked about in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to what is going on now. And now that Jesus has come and died and rose again and has presented himself as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, now you can understand what Isaiah was actually for. Now you can understand what the Old Testament was actually speaking about. These things were written down for you so that you could better understand what Jesus is doing right now. We get one more verse from, straight from Jesus' mouth, which I, you know, anytime you can make a point and then Jesus says the, some of the similar words, it's, a, it's good to go to that. He's arguing with the Pharisees about things, as he did. And in Matthew 22, they're basically bickering about a particular theological point. And of course, you would expect, right, Jesus to say, well, what does your Bible say, Right? Like, he's, con he's the word consistent with the word of God. And so if they're arguing theology, then he's gonna communicate then what scripture says. And look at what he says to them. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's like, I'm quoting Exodus and I'm making a point that he's not the God of the, the dead. Now, think about this for a second. When Jesus was around, how much time had passed since Exodus was written? Like a lot, like hundreds of years, if not over a thousand. You know, like there's debate, etc. But a long time, let's just put it that way. Look at what he says to them. Have you not read what was said to you? Jesus looks at the Old Testament now that the kingdom of God has arrived, he looks at the people he's talking to. He says, have you not read what God has said to you? And the Pharisees didn't snap back and say, well, actually he said that to Moses at a particular historical context that involved a very, they were alive back, you know, he wasn't, they didn't snap back at him on that front. This, <laughs> what we're reading in Isaiah is primarily written down for our time. When we study the book of Isaiah, we should look for Christ. We should consider the historical context. And we're gonna do that even as we summarize what's going on. But we have to start with this idea that the prophetic works of the Old Testament were written down so that you and I could understand what God is doing today. They're primarily written down for us today. You are the main intent of what God is writing. Not the Israelites of 3,000 years ago, however many years ago. I feel like I look it up every now and then and then I forget, so a long time ago. <laughs> so then if this prophecy is primarily for our time, it's for us, it's, it's so that we could learn by their example, so that we could understand what was being written, what is Isaiah, what is the prophecy of Isaiah about? What's, what's a summary of Isaiah's prophecy? 
Like, how do we understand this particular book? And before, before I give us a little bit of a summary, I, want, I thought this was a good definition of what, a, what is prophecy. And, and we, could, we could probably have all kinds of conversations and lectures about that, um, but I, I have a definition of prophecy uh, from a gentleman who was a pastor at Cambridge in like the 17th century. So uh, I feel like there's some weight there a little bit, you know? Yeah, so <laughs> this is what he said. He said, prophecy is a solemn public utterance by the prophet related to the worship of God and the salvation of our neighbors. A solemn public utterance by the prophet related to the worship of God and the salvation of our neighbors. So when we say what is a summary of Isaiah's prophecy, we should be looking for things like a public utterance as it relates to the worship of God and the salvation of our neighbors. Look at Isaiah chapter one, verse two. Could we get more public than this? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Amen. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is starting his prophecy making sure that the intended audience is stated right off the bat. Let me tell the entire world, heaven and earth, what God has said. It's interesting. Let's look at, let's think for a second just about the historical context where we jump ahead. Because I think that is important. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and the kings of Judah. Now, Jotham and Uzziah were actually spoken of very highly. Uh, if you want to look at Second Chronicles 26 and following, you can see some of that. But this is during a time where there was about 68 years of things going really good. Israel was just, borders were expanding. Uh, they talk about how other nations were paying them off because God had blessed them because the kings who were sort of leaders at the time were drawing the people back to God's word. And so you could say that Isaiah grew up as a prophet where like God's people were just bawling out. They were, they were just like, it was, good, it was like good times. No one, was, no one was stressed about the state of the church. They're like, we're honoring the Lord and we're bearing fruit and things are growing and we're a light to the nations and all of these things are just happening on a scale that's just like 60 plus years of that. And there's just like a measure of like, ah, oh, this is pretty good. No stress about the influence of the people of God at, at that particular time. But then we get Ahaz. And he was the worst. <laughs> and it, does, it just goes downhill from there. And so the actual prophecy of Isaiah kind of starts historically in this space of Ahaz. 
where, where God's people don't really recognize, don't really recognize the like downward spiral of things because everything's just been going so great. And Isaiah comes on the scene and says, hey, this isn't good. You're so comfortable with the success that you've enjoyed that you don't recognize what's actually happening. So he gets right to the point. The ox knows its owner, verse three, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. I still feel like that's like the most painful insult. You know, like, like the donkey knows where it should live. My people completely space what's going on right now. They've forsaken the Lord. They despise the Holy One of Israel. So he's making this public utterance, this prophecy to God's people in a time where they've been very comfortable and enjoyed a measure of success. And he gives us kind of, uh, he, he goes on to say like, look, you're, you don't recognize what's happening, but I'm bringing things into your space to draw you back to me. And he's like, why will, why will, you, be, why will you continue to rebel? Like I'm trying to like bring you, I'm trying to get you. He's, he's talking to his people. He's talking to God's people. He's not talking to the nations out there or unbelieving friends. He's talking to God's people and he's saying, I'm doing these things so that you would better recognize me, so that you would see me, so that you would understand me. And the very first thing that he says as he kind of speaks this prophecy through to the people as God is he, he complains about their worship. He complains about their worship. Look at verse 12. Actually, we'll start in verse 10. I guess it, I mean, talk, calling him a, comparing him to a donkey, I guess, is less bad than saying, hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Not you Sodomites, you rulers of Sodom. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts that do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. God's people don't recognize their heavenly father. And the first thing this prophecy, this public utterance is addressing is the worship of God. He says, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. I think it's easy to kind of go through the motions of worship. But if we're honest with ourselves and we think about how we approach God, how often are we humbling ourselves and desiring to set aside and to genuinely take some time to repent and recognize how 
far short. We genuinely fall in pleading with God to stir our hearts and our affections so that we could come to him and just enjoy him and worship him for his sake. For his sake. Not because we get to see our friends, not because it makes us necessarily feel better, not because it's just part of what we've done, but we actually approach God and worship him because we just want to be in his presence. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. He kind of ends that section in verse 17. It says, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. That's in verse 17 and in verse 23. So it's kind of like a, a section that's bookend with this. They, they don't bring justice to the fatherless in verse 23. They, and, they, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So he's addressed the, the worship of the people of God, and now he's addressing their love of their neighbor, the, the salvation of others. And you say, well, why the fatherless and the widow's cause? Like, why is that like, a, you know, why do we repeat that section? Why is that like such an important thing? And in this, and this is where I think there's, there's, a, there's a benefit to understanding that even though this is a prophecy designed for you, so that as Jesus Christ has risen and, and is ruling and reigning and the kingdom has come. Understanding kind of historically what's going on is still a very relevant part of wrestling with the particular passage. We're not like throwing that out. We're just saying it's primarily for us. And if you were to be in Isaiah's time and honestly through a large part of the ancient world and in certain countries even today, the passing on of wealth comes through the husband and the father. <laughs> Like the, it's the, it's the, it, you, you pay, there was even, even in the Old Testament, if you were to pay a dowry when you were to, uh, the, the wife's parents were to pay a dowry to the husband and there was a situation where uh, the husband died or there was just a, a, a chance where that, that money or that land could have been moved somewhere else. There's protections in the Old Testament to protect the widow because it was very common then to say, okay, well, that money wasn't, wasn't really hers. It was his. We're going to move it into a different place and thing. So he's actually talking, when he talks about the fatherless and the widows, he's saying, do you have concern for the group of people that actually can't give anything back to you? Are, are you leaning into the love and care of your neighbors in a way that actually doesn't benefit you? And he contrasts that with, what he says right before that, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. So when, when God's people are doing things to get something back, are concerned for their neighbor so that they get something out of it, they're actually not reflecting the goodness and glory of God. I would say they, that's part of what it means to actually not see and recognize God. Think about his character. He's the one who at no, at only cost to himself gave his only son for you. He's the one who continues to be patient and gracious and kind and move towards you 
even though we come to worship often for our own gain. So there is quite a few chapters addressing the problem. But the good news, the thing that we're going to be kind of focusing on through Isaiah chapter 40 and following is that God recognizes all these things. He's committed to his children. He's actually bringing the prophet into position and proclaiming this publicly so that they would recognize their state and turn to the Lord and see what he is capable of. Look at verses 24 in this section right here. Therefore, the Lord declares, since I've made this public, public proclamation about worship that's, that the heart is not with it, they're not with me, they're just going through the motions. So I made this public proclamation to my people who are more excited about gifts and bribes and serving those who don't give back to them. Since I've said all of these things, since I've spoken about what is actually going on with my people, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel says, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hands against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. It's a picture of purification. It's a picture of destroying everything wrong with us and making us beautiful and glorious and pure gold. God's saying, I'm the one that's gonna do that. I'm the one that recognizes the state of my people just enjoying the fruit of their labors over the last 60 years and totally ignoring the true worship of God and the genuine love of neighbor. neighbor. I'm gonna be the one to step in and bring the circumstances to make my church as beautiful as I designed it. Afterwards, you show, the city was called How the Faithful City Has Become a Whore. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The faithful city. God has a design and a purpose and an intention for his kingdom. And here is Isaiah, this, this public utterance addressing the worship of God and the salvation of our neighbors intended for us now that Jesus is sitting on the throne and ruling and reigning, and we don't have to worry about a terrible King Ahaz or a good King Josiah or a terrible King whoever, you know, like the whole history of Israel is like, oh, they're bad, oh, they're good. Like, like it's just like back and forth. We have the good King sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. <laughs> Amen. And guess what? God has a purpose for his people to purify us so that we would desire and love and worship him from a true heart and give of ourselves to others who don't give back to us. So then if this prophecy is a public utterance and it's, it's primarily for our time, we've kind of been picking at this a little bit as we've, work through some of this section. What's our public utterance? Like what, what, is, what is the prophecy for us today? I 
I mean, it's hard for me. You know, we're, I think our, our brains are always trying, I'm reading a book about trauma, and our brains are always trying to like make sense by telling a story. And when we experience trauma, parts of that break down, and even the parts where we can start to verbalize things like crumble. So p- part of healing is being able to actually have a narrative that like makes sense of like the trauma that you experienced. Because when we can sort of put this broad narrative to things, and it, it starts to fit all the desperate pieces into like one arching hole. And one of those pieces that really stands out to me is I don't... I grew up in a context, and I know I was in like um, Pharisee camp, private school, like about as shielded and as bubbled as you possibly can be. But as I've talked to other people who um, are in my age and generation, I grew up in a context where talking about and being a Christian was like normal thing. Like it wasn't that crazy, you know? Like it was just like, maybe people weren't on board with everything I was, but it was just like, just a, it felt like just part of the way things were, you know? And I think increasingly, it's becoming more uncomfortable. (laughs) Increasingly, we're having a rub with the things that my work friends value and like and believe and the things that my church friends value and like and believe. And we're kind of in the middle like, ugh. (laughs) It feels that way. It feels that way. So it's hard not to see the sitting, uh, it's hard not to see the like prosperity of our nation over the past hundred years and the comfort and, and wonders and the, just the, the, the level of just general acceptance, let's just say, that, that Christianity has had that is diminished. And, I, and, and then to sit here and look at Isaiah and, and he doesn't blame like the government. He doesn't blame like, oh, the the people who just don't, you know. He's making this prophetic thing and he's saying, my people, my people don't recognize me. That's the problem. And I think that's where I feel kind of comfortable when people make broad, I don't like broad generalizations because they're annoying, but we make broad generalizations about the church and the things that the church should have done or could have done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's something to be said for that. Like, the church hasn't, I mean, regardless of even what political affiliation you have, we can look and point at the church and say there's aspects of the Christian community that we would be all be bummed about and we would like to see different. And so I think what Isaiah is doing, he's, this prophecy is coming to us right now and he's saying the issue isn't necessarily politics. The issue isn't necessarily how popular or not popular your beliefs are. God is not hindered by whatever is going on in the world. The issue is that God's people don't recognize their creator. They don't go to him for true worship because they just, just for the sake of being in his presence. They don't enjoy serving and giving themselves for others and reflecting that character even though they get nothing in return because they're so dead set on getting something out of it. I think the public utterance, the prophecy for our time is that God often, often is the source of our struggles so that we would worship him and care for others. I think what Isaiah is telling us 
is that God is often the source of our struggles so that we would worship him and care for others. Truly worship him just for the sake of being with him. And I think there's two things that get in the way of that. I think sin gets in the way of true worship. We cling to stuff we know is wrong. And that gets in the way of our enjoyment of God when we worship. I think that's what God is telling us through the prophet Isaiah. He can't endure iniquity in solemn assembly. He says, wash yourselves, make yourself clean. That's why in our, in our, even in our liturgy, we, we take a moment to say, Lord, I am unworthy, I am unclean, yet you love me and care for me. We repent. He says, Zion, his, his people, shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. I think sin gets in the way of true worship. If you're hearing what Isaiah is saying, if you're hearing what the Lord is saying, in gathering to worship and enjoy God is just routine for you, I would say examine your heart and ask the Lord to reveal what are you holding on to? What sin are you not repenting of so that when you come into his presence, you're not enjoying worship? And then I think self gets in the way of caring for others. Self. Self gets, I get in the way of caring for others. I need something. I have this plan. I thought things would go this way. I don't get anything out of this. Now, I think if you are like what Isaiah says in chapter 26, verse 3, says, um, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I really do believe as God calls us to give of ourselves to others, whether that's our children, our neighbor, our friends, I really do believe if there's a measure of anxiety around that, it's because we're focused on our ability and not what God is capable of. We're focused on our ability and not what God is capable of. And that's the good, that's like the best part about chapter 40 onward, you know? Like God is showing up, comparing himself to everything that we cling to. And he's saying, get out of here with that. I'm so much bigger, I'm so much stronger, I'm so much more capable if you were to come and worship me, 
if you were to trust the, what I have said to you, if you were to take into account my prophetic word to you, I'm so much more capable than any levers you're trying to pull to get whatever it is you're trying to get. And so next week we start in chapter 40. I think about this reality that God does, God is often the source of our struggles so that we would worship him and care for others. God's often the source of our struggles. And then chapter 40 comes and says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry for her, that her, war, her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel, is that we have a God who is, loves us and cares for us and is disciplining us, yes, as an individual, as a community, as a church more broadly. He's bringing a measure of discipline because he wants to make his church beautiful again. But he's saying your iniquity is pardoned. Be comforted by the reality that you have the perfect righteousness of the servant we're gonna learn about as we move on. He has someone who trusts his word and lives by it in every moment of every day. And that's Jesus Christ himself. And he's given that to you. He's credited that to you because that's what he's shaping and molding and forming you and making you like. So that like Jesus, when you say, man, this is exhausting. Jesus, shouldn't we go get some food? And you say, my food is to do the will of the Father. <laughs> like, he's like, he wasn't like, oh, you're right. This is kind of annoying. <laughs> he's like, I'm just enjoying doing what God has brought me here to do. And it's kind of crazy to think of the situations that God put us in sometimes. We're like, how could we possibly think this is a good place we should be right now? How could this possibly bring a measure of peace and joy? And I think that's what's so powerful about what God is capable of doing. He's able to step in and say, for those whose mind is stayed on God, there's perfect peace. And I really genuinely believe that as a church community, as a, as a Mayus, let's get the rest of the American church out of the picture here. I've seen this happen with us where you and I are fixed on the Lord and we see God do wonderful things. I think Luke is a great example of that even over the last couple, I mean, this started over a month ago when there was just a panic and we were all genuinely concerned as we very should have been. And, and we came together and there's pray and there's consideration, there's drawing near to God. And, and the, just the, the testament of our church over the past six weeks has been wonderful to the Longabas. They've said it's what's kind of kept them going. I've seen that in us. And I think that as even as small as we are and kind of the situation we're in and we could talk about our surroundings and we could go off on and off about all the things we could or couldn't do, but as we draw near and worship God, as we put ourselves out there for others in a way that we don't get anything out of because we're resting in the joy of the Lord, we will see him do amazing things. We will see him step in and do things that we couldn't do. That's what I'm excited about as we walk through the book of Isaiah is we're gonna over and over and over again say, look at how cool God is. Look at how powerful he is. Look at what he's capable of doing. And as we draw near to him and worship him, we're gonna see him work because this prophecy is for us primarily today. It's for us. 
I would just encourage you over the week, maybe just be asking the Lord, where has some of my sin gotten away of enjoying your worship? Ask him to reveal that. Your iniquities are forgiven, but we're still dealing with them. <laughs> Doesn't love you any less. Wants you to enjoy just gathering and being in his presence. And then I think if you're, if you have anxiety or stress or just exhaustion when it comes to putting yourself out there for others, maybe it's just trusting God with that. Maybe it's setting your mind on him and what he's up to and not what we have to do because <laughs> it's so easy to go there. Maybe if we let go of some of that a little bit and we stepped back from whatever situation we were involved in, we would see him work in a way that we didn't expect or didn't predict or didn't plan because we trust him and we know that he's capable. Let's pray. Father, you are truly glorious beyond words, beyond my ability to comprehend. And yet you show up, you reveal yourself, you draw near to us, you gift us with your son, with righteousness, your, our iniquities are pardoned. You're determined and you continue to go after your people and sometimes, yeah, we're very stubborn and we don't see what you're up to, Lord. I pray that you would just soften our hearts. I pray that you would help us recognize where you're genuinely at work. Help us just see your glory and your majesty so that when we come and we gather, whether at home or at church, that we would enjoy the worship of you for your sake alone. Thank you for that, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.